Hi everyone, the Ask Mike Show, we are back again, and today we have a special guest, we have Scott Page in the studio. Scott, thank you for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much. Honored to be here, buddy. And Scott is best known as a saxophonist for Pink Floyd, but he's also toured with Toto and Supertramp, so we've got a, a lot going on in the music industry right now. There's so much happening, so yeah. much changing, I imagine, but to take us back a little bit, what are some of the interesting moments or stories that you could think of that you could share with us with your time at Pink Floyd to start with because that's the that's the one most people would probably have heard of yes most people have heard of Pink Floyd it's actually a very interesting brand right it's it's such a global brand and when I joined the band it was interesting I really knew nothing about Pink Floyd nothing like zero and uh, so it was funny because I ended up going, I was in Supertramp at the time and we were playing and Dave Gilmore came and played a solo, was a guest on the Supertramp record. And I met Dave and I invited him to this club that I was playing at that night after the session. He came down and hung out. And uh, then a week later, I did this event uh, called uh, the the uh, First Dance, which was I held took basically the uh, Los Angeles Guitar Center, which is a big music store here in L.A., uh, and we set up a whole staging and brought in a 50 piece band. I had everybody from, you know, Super Tramp and Toto plus, you know, Tower Power Horns. And we did this big extravaganza. Dave came down to that event. And then uh, uh, like the next day or two days later, I get a call from him and he says, hey, we need to put solo on the I wanted to see if you come and put a solo on the Floyd record. Right. And I said, OK, great. So I went and uh, did the play, did the solo. That was interesting. But again, I really knew not much about Pink Floyd. So for me, it was like going and doing just doing another session. <laughs> right. And, you know, I knew of it, obviously, because he played on the Super Tramp record and stuff. But I never really knew the significance because I'd, I'd come out of the, uh, you know, uh, more of the R&B and funk world, you know, playing saxophone was more of that as opposed to the kind of what I would call the psychedelic kind of rock kind of scene and um so i went and did the record came back and yeah i was got the solo put it on all that stuff and then a couple days later dave gilmore calls me up on the phone the english guy pick up the phone it's dave he says hey we're getting ready to go out again we're going to go do a major tour you want to come join the band we're looking for somebody blah 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 and i said well let me think about it dave and so because i wasn't real i had just finished working uh, that project that i filmed and shot that I did at Guitar Center. I was in the middle of just per putting that together. It was one of my own projects. And uh, so I called some friends of mine up. I said, you know, I got called. This guy, Dave Gilmore, called me up and said, hey, do you want to, we're looking at a band called Pink Floyd. I went and just played on their record. And, you know, I was doing sessions, so it was not unusual to get called to play on a record. So um, they were all going, you're crazy if you don't do this gig. Are you kidding me, Big Floyd? Are you kidding? And I said, wow. I said, I really don't know much about the band, right? So I went to Tower Records that night, which was open 24 hours. I went there around 1 or 2 o'clock in the morning. I bought Pink Floyd albums. That was on vinyl. Um, and I brought those home, and I, I listened to the records and stuff. Oh, okay, great. And I called a couple more friends, and I said, yeah. So I said, I called Dave up, said, okay, let's go. And so... I'm very thankful I took that gig. <laughs> that was one that I can't believe I always almost missed, right? So uh yeah, it was a very interesting thing. But you know, Pink Floyd is is truly an incredible thing. I'm now the biggest fan on the planet. 
Uh, Dave Gilmore is my, my guru, my mentor. I learned so much from him about music, about melody. He's the master of melody and that tone and just his ability to really speak to people. Because, I mean, you think about it, if you look at those songs like Comfortably Numb, if you hear Comfortably Numb and there's no guitar solo, it's kind of like if you don't hear that solo, that solo, the notes that he played, it almost doesn't fit. It's almost as important as the lyrics. So he he really changed my playing from where I was playing ba ba da ba ba da ba da all kind of stuff to now I just started playing much more melodies and try to be more melodic and thinking. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's incredible stories with Floyd in in uh, you know as far as you know being out on the road because the brand is so powerful worldwide. It was actually interesting. Um, you know, I shot about 150 hours of Pink Floyd video on that. I documented a, a big part of that particular tour and stuff. And what was fascinating were the fans. We would find fans that would actually take off or save up and took off from work for six months, save their money. And I would wake up in, you know, Stockholm and there are these people be standing outside the hotel. And the next time I'm in Japan, they're standing outside the hotel. The next time I'm in, you know, the south of France, they're standing outside the hotel. It was really amazing how powerful that brand is. And we used to laugh because, you know, the, the tour pass, you know, the, your, your, your tour pass, you know, you could go into a restaurant and they'd say, Oh, sorry, sir. We're full right now. We can't get in. You'd hold up the pass and they go, Oh, right this way, sir. So it was like, we called it the key to the universe. Uh, but yeah, I mean, that was an, you know, incredible, incredible, incredible tour. Uh, amazing, you know, powerful brand and probably one of the easiest gigs I've ever had because Nobody ever really told me, you know, Dave never said, play this, play that. He just said, just play. So I got to make up my own parts. So I got to actually solo wear my own clothes and all that kind of stuff. But I did always look at um, Dick Perry, who was the original guy from the early, early days. Uh, I would always look at, listen to his souls and make a little nod to him because, again, he was part of that piece of history. And then I would just make the rest of the stuff up. But yeah, great, credible, credible times. I mean, there's a million stories. I could go on forever. Well, one of the things that I guess you learn a bit when you watch documentaries and you learn about, you know, a little bit of behind the scenes and they do take you behind the scenes to a certain extent and the singers or bands always share like what runs through their mind and but most people don't really get the full the full picture i mean now it's right. a different ball game now at least compared to what it was back then but back then it was so new like now it's it's almost like we know so much that the singers are sort of they're almost prepared not, not. I imagine you can't fully prepare for how the world's going to hit you. But back then, when things started to get really surreal for for you, what what was it like? Because you got people following you around, essentially mm -hmm. saving up, taking a year out, following Pink Floyd, and you you step out potentially to see some familiar faces, but there'd be just thousands upon thousands of people. You've not even started yet. You've not even done your thing on stage yet, and they're still like, ah! you know, wanting to oh, yeah. you and all those things. Is it is it ever normalized, or do you always step out and go, oh, 
this is crazy. What what's that? What's that feeling like? You know, it's interesting. People always ask that. Uh, you know, it's God. What is it like to stand up on the stage and have you know a hundred thousand people in a stadium, in a big stadium, or something looking at you and kind of what it is. And what's fascinating about it? I mean, it's incredible. Obviously, you walk out there and you see this massive audience, but actually. And we're spread out usually pretty heavily on the stage to make it feel big. So we're, we're kind of separated. And what's funny about it is, is when you look out, it just looks like a big piece of wallpaper, <laughs> right? It's not very intimate. And especially on these kind of big tours, because they have the, the area in front that's barriered off from the audience. So the audience is actually pretty far away. And it's, it's actually, for me, the most exciting parts of a lot of playing a lot of the Floyd shows were not necessarily the big shows, but what we would do is we had a band that we called ourselves, the Floyd called ourselves the Fisher, Fishermen's, and we would play clubs after we would play the big shows. So we, the promoters would have it set up so that we would go after our show. We had them set up so we'd go to a club. Nobody knew we were coming and we'd go in and then they would let people know Pink Floyd's playing in this club, right? And the place is just slammed, right? But we would never play Pink Floyd songs. We would only play R&B and rock and roll tunes, everything that we don't play all the time. But those were really fun because the audience was so close and you're like, you know, it's like a group of people where when you're in the stadium side, it feels, you know, it, it, it has a different kind of a feel. It's not as intimate. I've always loved playing clubs because I like to get in people's face and, you know, play to them and, you know, a hot chick in the front row. It's always fun. And then, you know, you've got some distance between you on those big gigs where I would usually try to find somebody in the first front row and make eye contact with them and try to play to them so that I felt like I was actually playing to somebody. So. It's really odd. You know, the big tours are as fantastic they are just from a personal, like, really exciting. I, I like the more intimate settings that I've had and played gigs that were just more, they just have a different kind of feel because you're, you're right there with everybody and, you know, really five feet away from you and you're, you're playing, you know. That makes perfect sense because of all of the, well, potential pandemonium, if you will, that can come with being so popular everywhere that you go. I imagine that they have to protect it to a certain degree. The people that have these venues that have you play there, oh, yeah. that, that there's a lot that goes into making sure that you're okay. You can't have fans diving on you. You haven't even started yet. So yeah. I imagine that might take a little bit of the the personalized side of it and the whole sort of almost intimacy that you can have with the band. Um, it's a shame, really, because... That, I imagine that's part of why you you play. Is, is oh yeah, but the fans are big, you know, big part of it, right? It's you know, let's face it, musicians. The whole idea is to get that feedback. We we all live a bit off of our ego, right? I mean, it feels good. You practice all those days, and it's a wonderful feeling to to feel people really liking what you do or caring. And you know, and again, like when those clubs, when we'd go in, you know, we always we had security with the band all the time, right? There was always our own security we had two guys that would everywhere the band would go they were our security guys and 
they would make sure. And then when we play those clubs, they didn't tell anybody. I mean, it wasn't like they, they broadcast it. They would just leak it out once we got there and the place would be like, people couldn't believe it there. What? Pig Floyd in, in this, my club. I'm here at this club. I had no idea. So those were always fun because you could definitely feel the energy from the people. But yeah, I mean, the fans are pretty incredible with Pink Floyd, which is so interesting because it, it spans, I would see parents bringing their kids, right? So that brand just spans all ages. And even to this day, I mean, in the States here, we go around, you go to like Target, these stores, they're still selling Pink Floyd shirts and stuff. So it's one of those those brands, you know, it's, it's fascinating. You know, there's like a handful of bands that are just the bands of that we've all known, you know, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Led Zeppelin, you know, the Who, uh, Pink Floyd, right? And that those are basically kind of the the pinnacle brands that are still there after all these years and will continue going on and on forever because the, the way those records were made and, and how they were captured and the emotion that comes across them just will transcend, you know, time and, uh, you know, people for forever, right, I believe. A lot different than a lot of the records today. There are so many hit records that I think will just go away. They're interesting, but they lack that soul that we put on those records in those days because we weren't victims of overchoice. In other words, we didn't have all the the tools to fix everything. You had to commit to what you played. You know, we didn't have, we couldn't fix it if we were out of tune. If we were out of tune, you were out of tune. And that was part of the record, right? And sometimes the out of tune, we had a little bit out of tune, just made it sound like there were more of you. And it was kind of cool. And that was part of the personality. So especially when you listen to these, you know, all those great records, there was just because we were limited by what we could do, forced us to have to think totally different and really put on things that were, were capturing a moment, not where I can go into the studio. Now I can go play a solo and they can go in and they fix it. They flip it. They, they can, if I was a little flat, they raise the pitch, they make everything perfect, you know? And so I think a lot of that is what that perfection, which sounds great maybe at the time, but really doesn't transcend emotionally to the people the same way that those little mistakes and things that are captured during the, the way we had to record before, because we only had so many tracks and we had to commit, right? There was, that's it. And you'd move on. You can, you know, edit the same way and the things that you can do today. What would you say help towards Pink Floyd sort of breaching that generational thing? Because you bring up parents bringing their kids, but now that that may or may not still happen, is there something in what you guys did, or is it simply just it happened to you, and then you look back and go, "Oh yeah, that did that that did happen." You didn't really plan for that, or was it in fact something you you engineered? Well, I mean, there, there's a certain amount of engineering and a certain amount of just who knew, right? I mean, it's just it's just for some reason, just like some artists connect with other art with other with fans in a different way. It's that emotional appeal. Uh, but you know, again, with Floyd, what was interesting, you know, I, I as a when I when I basically got that gig, I, we rehearsed, we flew to Toronto and we rehearsed in an airplane hangar out on the tarmac where we do. So they would have to ship us out between 747s to get us out to the, where the, where the, where the, you know, the, 
the uh, hangar was where we were set up. And I'll never forget going in there, seeing, go, get, waiting for 747s to go by and taxiing us out to this hangar, sitting in that hangar. And I'm, I'm seeing beds flying, pigs flying, this lighting system I've never seen before, massive stage, sound system like you can't even believe, 747s going by the outdoor doors. You know, the doors are open and we're seeing all this stuff going on. And I was just, that was amazing. And I talked to Dave, when I talked to Gilmore, I said, man, this is crazy. He says, yes. He says, if you make it grand, they will come. So one of the things that Pink Floyd always does is they've always pushed the limits of technology. You know, they've always been on the forefront. I mean, we were doing surround sound in a stadium, you know, you know, quad sound systems, incredible lights, massive laser systems, you know, things that fly, all that kind of stuff to really make the experience you know, incredible. So a big part of what they brought to it was the experience. And I think that's a, a big part of the planned part. Uh, but, you know, back in the day, I'm sure it was more about just playing out and getting lucky, right? Just being being the, the ones that talk to people. But it's fascinating because the style of music and what was happening wasn't necessarily real top 40. And, uh, but it's still a uh, you know, it's still to this day. I mean, we went around the world twice with that tour and basically pretty much sold out everything and probably could have gone around again. People just love Pink Floyd. It's amazing. What were some of the, the biggest lessons that you learned from Dave? Is it something that you still use now? Because you mentioned music, talking to people. That that's rings true for me because music for me has altered like, the meaning, I guess. Over yeah. Time. So people use music for a lot of different reasons, which we're going to get to later on. But yeah. some of the, the biggest lessons that you learned from Dave? Uh, I mean, I learned a lot from Pink. I mean, Pink Floyd taught me a lot because prior to this, my goal, I was working as a producer uh, and really loved live events. I had produced m multiple live events uh before that and really got into that aspect of it. And so I, I was like a sponge not only listening from the music side, but looking at the operation sides of what it takes to move this around, be able to set it up, the types of teams, the positions, you know, how they put things together logistics wise. And uh, I mean, I learned a ton. I mean, there's no question. Uh, I hung out a lot with the, with the production crew and the team. I used to travel a lot of times with the, uh, with the truck drivers and stuff back in the day. I would love to take those, take those rides because it was always very interesting to see how they would do it. I mean, just the logistics of setting, of filling up the trucks. I mean, there was, you know, every, every truck that's set up with all the gear, it is completely designed so that everything almost fits like a puzzle and everything has to go back in the truck exactly the way it was designed. So they design, they actually take every piece of gear, every case, everything it's measured. They stuff, they figure it out like a big puzzle so that they can fill the trucks up so when they actually put the put it to take it down or put it up it goes back and goes in in a specific order so it's very very well tuned and timed and figured out and so it's like it's really a it's very organized so i learned a lot there on the music side it was really i go back to dave uh the the, the being the master of melody he was just incredible about melody he was like really made me realize that it's not what you play, it's what you say. You know, if you listen to Dave, he never plays a million notes. You never hear him doing a lot of little of that kind of stuff. It's always very singing. He plays like a singer. 
he plays very melodic and musical. So for me, it was a really a lot about that. Uh, I got a ton out of that. And probably, you know, which is really funny, and this is actually goes away from Pink Floyd. One of the biggest mentors I ever had was Diana Ross. I played with Diana Ross and she was incredible. I learned a ton from her. Uh, and that goes back to, you know, my, I, everything I do my whole life has been based on really trying to analyze patterns, understand patterns, because patterns can give you such insights. And I would look for patterns and things and everything that I'd see over and over because a lot of times we would do things over and over again. And I'd like to see what works, what doesn't work, how you do things. And again, Diana Ross was incredible because she taught me about stage, about presence, about, uh, you know, how to manipulate, I wouldn't say manipulate, but how to maneuver crowds, how to get everybody to stand on their feet every night. And she did a whole series of different kinds of what I would call, uh, tricks that she would use to get the audience on their feet. And one that I'll never forget was she would always like we'd play. She could get, first of all, get the audience up out of their seat and uh, just insane every night, whether she could sing or not. And she would do things like find somebody in the front row and she'd connect with them. She'd look at them and she'd make sure she knew they were there. Right. And she, and then the people around them would feel the energy of her communicating with that person Really, because she'd look at them and pay attention to them and make sure she knew that they were there and that she was, they were communicating. And then she'd find somebody over here. She'd do the same. Then she'd find somebody over, and then somebody back in the back of the, uh, of the, of the venue, you know, way in the back, real small, holding a sign. She would acknowledge them. And so she would go through the whole audience and make sure everybody knew. And then finally, she just made it feel like she was actually engaging with the audience. So she taught me a lot about that. Uh, she was responsible for me having a mullet, <laughs> which is funny. Uh, uh, mainly reason why is because I noticed every night when she was on the bandstand, the way her hair would like light up and things. And I had short hair at that time. And I said, geez, man, I think this hair thing is a big deal. Right. So, I, but I said, I hated to have long hair. So I said, I'm going to, I'm going to grow it long in the back. And this was before, I mean, I was, I was one of the early, 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 early mullet guys. Uh, so at that time it was cool. Right. I mean, you know, you get, I was like the cool haircut back in those days. I look back now and it's like, Oh my God, what was I thinking? Uh, uh, cause I had a massive one, man. My hair went way down past my butt at times. You know, there's actually a funny picture of me playing with Spinal Tap at Radio City Music Hall and my hair was all the way down. So I had this flowing mullet. So I am the, I was the mullet king. I had the, probably the greatest mullet the world has ever known. Uh, but the reason for that was, is I realized that when she flew her hair around, the lights picked up and it was really cool. So I figured, you know, if I could flow my hair around, it's just more presence and stage presence, right? So blonde as well, or was it? Huh? Did, you, did, you, did you ever dye it blonde so the light would reflect like it was already my hair was already pretty light as it was i never i mean I, there was a couple times i looked like a tropical fish uh you know i i definitely did the hair and now it's so funny it's like everybody looks like a tropical fish today so i i was ahead of my time right so it's like nothing you know you walk anywhere stores wherever it doesn't matter but he's got wild colored hair it's part of the deal but yeah i learned that from her and the other thing that i learned which was really fascinating and i took a lot of this with me as i moved forward was she had the she was 
she was a good dancer, but she wasn't like dancing wasn't her thing. Like, you know, Jennifer Lopez or something like massive dancer, but she moved good and everything, but she knew how to stand. She had this incredible way of standing and, and angling her body in a way that just looked so appealing the way she stood and presented herself. And I was going, wow, it's crazy. I do that. So I went out, which was funny is I used to have, you know, saxophone players, you have a saxophone strap around your neck and you can't really move or whatever because the horn is there. So I went out after I finally kind of watched her and got into the, what she was doing. And I went to I remember going to a music store and buying a stretch guitar strap. And putting it around my shoulders so that I could push my saxophone down to my side and I could angle myself to be in a specific way because, again, you're, people are looking at you. So you want to try to make things look appealing. And so, you know, it was it was interesting things like that. And, you know, she would always whoever was in front would always when it was their turn, move up in front and be at the front of the vortex of the stage and i used to do things like it was interesting uh, i learned that when it's your turn you want to be up in front so i would use all the time you know when we playing on, on on floyd i would you know if dave was here and it was my turn i would it wasn't my turn i'd stand back let dave have his thing when it was my turn i'd always go out to the front and i'd push myself so if dave was two feet from the front i'd hang my toes over the edge mainly because what happens is is it would give a it helps drive a focal point visually. So these are all things that you learn as a performer and stuff. And so she was instrumental in a lot that I'd learned. And uh, yeah, it's fascinating, all this stuff. Was that, For me, it was anyway. Was it something you did when you were a kid? Was that the only instrument you ever wanted to play? What's your What's your history with that? Oh, with play, playing? Well, actually, my I, I grew up. On t my father was on a television show here in the States called The Lawrence Welk Show. And The Lawrence Welk Show was one of the first variety television shows uh, started in the 50s, right? And uh, my dad was on that in that band for 15 years. So I grew up around television through my whole, through growing up through till I was 15. In high school, I was around television. So I was doing that. My dad was a saxophone player, woodwind player, uh, but I took up the trumpet. So I was a trumpet player first for years all through school, but I really didn't want to be a musician. I studied to be an architect. So I was a draftsman and I was a really a more in that space. And then I got into a band when I was in high school, at, the, at my last year in high school, called Merciful Soul Band, which was David Page and Jeff Baccaro, who were the original members of Toto, right? So this is our kid band, much prior to Toto wasn't even thought about in those days. And so we had this kid band and it was really good. I was the second trumpet player. It was like a Chicago blood, sweat and tears horn band, like back that those times, because that was what was happening at the time. Yeah. And um, I was the worst guy in the band. I played second trumpet and, uh, but it was so cool because at that time I had, I had just gotten out of high school and I was going to college and I had gotten a job as a draftsman because I was pretty good. I studied design and architecture and all that. So I got a job in a company called Audiodyne where I drew exploded views of parts. So, you know, imagine you've seen engines in manuals and all the parts are all exploded out and then you can see where they go. So I would do I was that was my sort of forte was doing those isometric drawings and drawing parts like that. And that's when we had to use a ruler and a pencil, right? There was no, no computers. Everything's done on computers now, but you know, we had to be careful about how the lines and all that kind of stuff. And so um, I was doing that job sitting in a, in an office, you know, drinking 10 cups of coffee a day, drawing away. 
And then I uh, got in this band and we started playing and winning all the battle of the bands. And the cool part was I'd be playing there and that whole front row was filled with girls. <laughs> and when you're in high school, it's a different story. And I said, you know, I like this music business much better than sitting in that office drinking 10 to 12 cups of coffee every day. So I decided, I said, I'm going to become a musician now. I was horrible at the time. I wasn't good enough to really become a professional musician, but I decided I switched everything to just practicing and playing every day, studying like crazy. And because I couldn't work as a musician, because I didn't really have the chops, I used my drafting skills and became a music copyist uh, because I was good with a pencil and I could do it. And then in those days, a copyist, uh, for those that might not know, is a composer would do a score that he'd write out by hand and then he would hand me the score and I'd go write the first trumpet part out, write the second trumpet part out, the saxophones, the violins, whatever that was. I'd write out all the parts, uh, usually for recording sessions, you know, when they do stuff. And I was working for a guy named H.B. Barnum, who was a big uh, composer, arranger in town doing a lot of records. And so I used those skills to get me keep me going in the business while I was studying. And then luckily I started getting good enough where I started getting gigs. And then the rest was kind of history. I just kind of moved up through the ladder of through word of mouth and started playing. And, you know, the first real kind of big band that I played with was Seals and Crofts. And that was in the seventies and um, the late seventies. And that was my sort of beginning in the career to really kind of go from that point on you know, I've had been lucky to play with, you know, I was in Mick Fleetwood's band. I was, you know, played with, you know, Chuck, Chuck Berry and James Brown. And, you know, I can go on and on just tons of different people through the years uh, and then just got really touring and then obviously got the job with Pink Floyd. And, and then that was that was a lot of fun. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it seems like word of mouth is the way that you would really do it then because taking us back to what we mentioned before, like almost right at the beginning, because you were already with one band, heard of this gig with Pink Floyd, that you had no idea who they were at the time. And then it all sort of snowballed from there. Is it just about word of mouth and relationships? Or is there a bit more to it? Because there might be people that are maybe trying to make it, but they're unsure of... You know, is just being good enough at that point or is there a bit more that you need to be able yeah, to? It's really about relationships and things. And I try to tell everybody because, I mean, I got, you know, Super Tramp for me came out of uh, I used to play this club gig in uh, Los Angeles. Uh, I was in a band. We played every Sunday, Monday night at this little bar. And there used to be a guy that would sit down in the back of the bar, have a beer every week. He'd be there. Finally, I went up, started talking to him and found out. He says, oh, yeah, I'm here. I'm doing this album. We're making an album. It's called Breakfast in America. And I'm in a band called Super Tramp. And it was the drummer, right? Bob Siebenberg. And we became buddies there. Didn't know anything. And then years later, um, I got the call. So you just never know where it's going to come from. So in those days, it was all word of mouth. We had no social media. We had no cell phones. Uh, it was about going down to the club, whoever was there, uh, exchanging numbers, you know, uh, trying to find out where there might be some jams to go play, try to meet people and then just play. So back in the day, I mean, I always would take any gig I could take. I didn't care whether it paid or it didn't pay. The goal was just trying to be around the community and find those relationships to get going. Now it's a little bit different because we have obviously so social media, you know, Twitter is a 24 hour 
cocktail party, right? I can like start contacting people and using these new tools and stuff to get tools and technologies to basically communicate with more people and make that happen. So it's a little bit different right now. It's a lot of discovering online, but you know, it's still about the relationships and, and, you know, uh, that's really a, a key to this. And, you know, now the whole business is completely changed and we've moved into a whole, uh, a new world because of, you know, because of social media and these tools and technologies, we've now moved into a direct to consumer world. Everything is about going direct. And, you know, now we have, you know, our cell phones or our worldwide broadcast network. Uh, I can take the order. I can, you know, I can take a, I can, you can write, you can send me money. I don't need a bank anymore. And, uh, and, you know, whoever owns the, the audience wins. I can find my audience, build my audience. And there's a, thing that was coined uh, quite a few years ago called the thousand true fans, which was Kevin Kelly from Wired Magazine says, basically, a true fan is somebody that will spend $100 on you. If I have 1,000 of those people, there's my first $100,000 in revenue. So the whole model is shifted to now this direct-to-consumer world uh, where you can go direct, build your fan base around a small group of people and actually build a, a very interesting living. It's less about massive audiences now and more about the uh, 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 smaller, rabid super fan networks. And that's where the money is because we now know that 60% of your revenue will come from probably 2 to 3% of your total audience. And those are the super fans that really care. So we have this whole new business model now where I can go find people. I can put my content up. I can build relationships and I can sell. The hard part is, is you can't sell music anymore. Music's not for sale because there's nowhere to sell it. Nobody will buy it. Who's going to buy music anymore? It's done. It's all streaming services. And unfortunately, the streaming services are really tough for most artists to make any money because... You know, it's like $5,000 roughly for a million streams. Well, only 2 to 3% of all of Spotify catalog gets a million streams or more. So it's really the high-end business. And, you know, those networks are all still owned by the labels. And the, the playlist is the new radio station. But that's the new, how do I get on those playlists? Uh, you know, the labels own all those. Very difficult. So the real business is a direct-to-consumer business where I build a relationship with the fans. Uh, and then I service them by giving them the th things that I can sell. What can I sell? I can sell the relationship if people like me enough and follow me around in the lifestyle and the relationship or an experience. And that's why for my company, Think Experience is really about how to, how to develop experiences that people will pay for because like that's where the money is. So it's all different business model now, different, different world we live in and different kind of businesses. I'm truthfully, I'm very being an entrepreneur, a serial entrepreneur, I'm on my fourth company. The this is probably the most exciting time I've ever seen in my life as as an entrepreneur, because there are so many new problems that need to be solved and ways to go about it. So if you're if you're a person that doesn't get bogged down in in in, in oh what happened everything's changed people are stealing my music I can't sell anything and then you're in trouble. But if you're like wow where are the opportunities now that there's so much confusion and I have the tools and they're cheap I can go record now for virtually nothing compared to the day when there was no way I could record unless I was repaying a $250 an hour to go into a recording studio to use some 24 track, right? So everybody's in the music business now. Anybody can be in the game, which is fantastic. But the, uh, the, the problem is everybody's in the game. That's the other problem. So how do I rise above the noise? You know, so I've been, um, 
one of the things I've been doing now is I, I teach a thing that I developed called SPACE, which stands for Story, Plan, Army, Conversion, Education. And it's basically a, uh, a business uh, uh, kind of strategy uh, for entrepreneurs or artists to build their own business. And uh, like I said, I think this is the most exciting time in history for the independent artists, too, because they can actually really go out and build a business from their home, on their laptops, on their cell phones, and actually build. But the problem they've got to solve for themselves is, what am I going to sell? And what do these people want? So if you can figure that out, that's the trick. That's why the, the process, story plan, army conversion, it's the business process for building your business. It's an interesting mindset that you bring up looking for the opportunities, especially with technology changing the world pretty much and yeah. the music industry not growing up with it, if you will. Like it was a very, very mature market. This is how it's done sort of thing. And then technology basically flipped the board and said, this is the new world order, right? And you've got to yep. adapt and we'll go with it in that way. Does that change the role of music for you? Because you've been in music pretty much all of your life. We're going back many, many decades now. How has the role of music changed and the, the experience of music as well? Yeah. How has that shifted over time? Oh, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, back in the day, it was all about trying to get a record deal and get some money, get in the studio. And they basically, you know, the record labels controlled all the data, right? They had all the contact with the art, with the fans and all of that. We didn't have email. We didn't, you know, they had the mailing list and really managed it all. And it was a different kind of model. You get a deal, they'd fund it. They'd, you know, do all the promotions, do all the stuff. And you just more or less played and showed up what you needed to do, and they did all the business side of it. Well, today, the model is different. I believe that artists have to think like a business person, and they have to be an artist at the same time. I'm a big believer that the art of business is is, is very similar to the art of music. You have to basically blend them together now where they become one thing. And Because here's the deal. Is it a business or a hobby? If it's a hobby, I can make stuff and put it out there and carry it. But businesses make money. So fans are now customers in my world. So because I want to build a business where I can go play my music, but I need to get enough revenue coming in to pay my bills, right? And it's interesting. Fans want to pay, but you got to create something of value. So the model has changed dramatically. Again, it's not about having to go out and reach millions like the old days and get distributions and record stores and, and places all over the world. You can manage your own distribution. You can build a direct-to-consumer business model. And so from an artist's point of view, it's really thinking differently. It's really they have to start thinking like a business. So it's, it's very much being uh, an entrepreneur than just being a music person. Because, I mean, I have music people right now that are going, dude, I, I don't want to do this business thing. I just want to, you know you know, sit home, smoke some fatties and write some songs. And I'm like, okay, that's good. That's fun. But the question is, is it going to be a business? Where are you going to sell that music? What are you going to do? It's a you, relying on the hits business is really tough. Now, there are every once in a while, there's one that will sneak through and a record label will say, you're so extraordinary. We're going to sign you. But if you look at it, you don't hear about a lot of record deal signings anymore. Right. That doesn't really happen anymore, even though record labels are making more money than they ever have. But it's really off of their back catalogs and the stuff that they're streaming. So they're killing it. But they're not 
putting the money anymore into developing an artist, learning, you know, helping that artist succeed, building that brand. They're like, they don't want to do that anymore. They're going to go out and find those artists that have millions of followers and tons of engagement, even whether they like the music or not. And they're going to go, that's the guy I want to get behind because he already has the audience built in and people that will actually go and buy these products. So it's a little different in that sense. So it's really about artists getting educated now. They need to understand what's going on, right? And they need to get business savvy. And the beautiful part is you have YouTube. I mean, you have you have YouTube, you have Google. You can basically find the answers to virtually anything you want. Just type it in and you can start to learn. So that's part of what I when I teach space. The story is critical. And it's not like, hey, I'm a guitar player from Cincinnati and I, you know, I grew up on this. Nobody cares about that story. That story has no value. The story is what do you stand for? What purpose? What is what are you doing? What value are you bringing? What can I create a rally cry around? So you got to figure out that story first. What do you stand for? What is it you can do? That may be specific causes, things that you might get behind, but something that people will rally behind. Once you got that story, then you go into the plan. I tell people there's this lean startup movement. You can go out and Google lean startup. There's a book called Running Lean that will teach you how that movement works. And there's a thing called the Lean Canvas, which is a one-page business plan. And it's used for every business now used in Silicon Valley because lean startup is about this one page business plan. You don't have 60 page plans anymore. All of that. It's all about lean principles, uh, which are, you know, fail fast. If you have an idea, test it quickly, validate it. If it doesn't work, fail, turn around, figure out what's next, adjust. And then the other thing is don't run out of resources. So if you have $1,000 to spend, don't go spend your $1,000 until you know how it's going to make you $2,000, right? So figure out what you can do. And the last one is what's the smallest thing that you can do to, to give you the biggest amount of bang, right? So it's really a methodology of thinking. And the one-page business plan, the Can't Lean Canvas, is one of the greatest business tools out there for anybody running a business, whether you're in the entertainment business, any business. Please go check that out. That will help you so much because what the one-page business plan does, it doesn't only tell you what you're going to do. It tells you what you're not going to do because we can spend a whole lot of time on something that will have no value and nobody will care about. So it's testing, validating, figuring it out. And then once you know that you've got strong signals that it's going to be successful, then you start using your money and go after it. So that's the planning segment. Then the A is the army, right? That's your influencers. The world is now about finding your influencers first. Influence the influencers first because they're the ones that are the spread, the word of mouth. So building your army and all of that stuff and understanding who those people are. Then C in the space is conversion. Because again, if it's you're not conversion, converting, you're not, <laughs> it's a hobby. Because if I'm not making revenue off of my art, then I'm doing it's a hobby. The idea is to, to build a business, which is totally different. So now there's conversion funnels. Conversion funnels are very simple to understand. Now you can go on Google. How to use a conversion? What is a conversion funnel? And basically a conversion funnel is when I meet you for the first time, you get followed up with some kind of an email and then I give them something and I'm moving them through a funnel of the engagement. I meet you once and you get an email. Then maybe every week for a week, you're going to get an email with an offer to finally move people through to do the buy for whatever the ask is. Sign up to my newsletter, buy my record, but whatever your 
selling or whatever your process is. So understanding uh, conversion funnels is very important because then you understand how to set them up and then how to convert your audience into paying you for it. And then the last one is E, which is education. All those things I talked about, you, if you don't get educated, you can't do it. You'll never be able to do it because technology is moving so fast. Things are happening. I believe because of this shutdown and everything, it's forced all these musicians into the hole to figure out what's next. And now you're seeing do more live streaming, coming online, doing more social media. It's basically forcing artists to move into a new paradigm. So, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunities in this space right now. Yeah, for sure. It's interesting to see how uh, how you take the the business ideas and concepts and methodologies and apply that to the music industry. It's something that I saw happening, but then there were still a lot of people that were resistant to it. You know, people oh, yeah. wanting to not not hold on to the past as such, but they knew what was working they knew what they were happy with and then it's so easy to it's so easy to be okay with good rather yep. than maybe have something that's great and some people are perfectly happy to stay doing well rather than have that potential of doing really well but you've always got that risk of of it not working rather than seeing seeing what other yep. people do that do well just copy them rather than going down this sort of new world way of doing things in the music industry. So it's good that you're on the forefront of that. What's the what's the name of the, the company, the website, and how can people find Okay, it? so my company is called Think Experience, Think EXP. If you just Google Think EXP, you'll start seeing what we've been doing. We just finished, well, up before the whole COVID thing, we had done 40 shows in a immersive 360 degree immersive dome in downtown Los Angeles, around 500 people per show. We sold out all 40 of them. We've been doing Think Experience. We did a Think Floyd experience, which is our first. We did Pink Floyd in the dome with an incredible band, Stephen Perkins from Jane's Addiction, Kenny Olson from Kid Rock's band, Nord Fisher from Fishbone, uh, and just a slew of incredible players. And we've been doing that. Um, and now, like I said, we're, we're focused on it's an immersive entertainment company because I ple believe people will pay for those immersive experience. When we were doing those shows, we were averaging $80 a ticket because of the experience. So that's a pretty good deal where people are trying to sell tickets. If you create something that is experience-based, people will pay. Well, now you're saying, well, how are we going to do experience-based stuff? when we can't even go to clubs or we can't do these things, it's a whole different ball game. Yeah. So that's why we're focused on right now is really how do I create an experience in the living room? How do I, how do I bring that experience into your home through a virtual experience, uh, through a virtual kind of a experience, right? Through these technologies. So think is really focused on building the live, putting the live stacks of technologies together. And then also what I'll call the audience management or the audience engagement platforms that tie the entire spectrum together. And how do we deliver that? How do we deliver that experience into the home? So we're getting ready to launch a show coming up here called living dot 
uh, living. It'll be at living.live. We haven't put it up yet because we're just getting ready, but it's, uh, we shot a, our first pilot. We're getting ready to shoot our next set of experiments and pilots coming up, but it really is. It uses the three things of that we see that I see basically being a technologist is and, and understanding where the market is. It uses the three things. One is the live performance, but it's going to be limited amount of people gathering. It'll be based on new, new rules of how we do it. Then the live streaming like we're doing right now, but it's really not just focused on the outward bound of live streaming and performance, but it's really focused on the fact of interactive television because now I can bring audience into my experience and I can interact with them. Right. And that's where it gets a little tricky, even though like zoom and some of these things are okay, but for music experiences and stuff, it's not quite great because you can't quite get the audio experience synchronization issues. So we have to start looking at different ways of technologies and putting things together that will allow for more of an interactive experience. But the third thing is what changes it makes it even more interesting from my point of view is right now in a, in a virtual experience, you and me talking on zoom, I can't hand you something through the screen. But we have delivery services now. So I can use a delivery service in order to bring you something that will be involved when we come online to do our show. You have a box of things that are will make that experience better that we can do together because now we have physical goods. So our model is, is virtual plus virtual equals physical. So we're, we're bringing physical things together in a, in a virtual space and then uh, creating that and building a, a business around that. And I'm very excited. Uh, the business models look great. The numbers look good. Um, the tests have been going great. And uh, we're getting ready to shoot another big one coming up here in October, end of October. And uh, I, like I said, I'm very excited about the future. I can see some very interesting where venues are going, how they're going to need to operate. Uh, in a virtual world at the same time. So it's going to be mashing that physical and virtual space together. I think from now on, I don't think it's ever going to change. Even, you know, if we get back to the day where everybody can still gather, I think it's going to be a place where you're going to bring people with you to events uh, virtually. And so you can have your friends that may not be there in the same hometown with you hanging out at the club in a lot of places, right? So I, I, we're really focused on inventing and working in that space. We've got an incredible team of people from, you know, from technologists to data scientists to uh, AI components that are all building out this infrastructure to kind of really take, you know, live entertainment and to the next level. It sounds like you're definitely well on your way to doing that. I mean, even if the pilots go <clears throat> half as well as you're explaining and talking us through, it's going to change everything, you know, merging the... Yeah. The offline to online. So those of you that are tuning in, make sure that you check it out if you haven't already, because we'll put links in the, the show notes for the episode. If you haven't subscribed already, we have tons of future guests and plenty of other episodes. So make sure you subscribe if you haven't already. And Scott, thank you for being a guest. It's been great to chat. I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you very, very much for letting me be on your show and everybody be safe out there. <laughs>